Thank you for tuning in to our first edition of the COVID-19 Office Hours 15-Minute Recap. My name is Rachel, and I'm a Quality Improvement Facilitator for Telogen QI Connect and the Hospital Quality Improvement Contract. We know you're busy and may not always have time for an hour-long presentation, so we are pleased to provide you with the latest COVID-19-related content in this shortened format. Thanks for being here. Before we dig in, I have a brief disclaimer to provide you with. This material was prepared by Telogen, the hospital quality improvement contractor, under contract with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, an agency of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The contents presented do not necessarily reflect CMS policy. This material is for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The content of this podcast reflect Telogen's best understanding based on currently available information about COVID-19 as of Tuesday, December 1st, 2020. However, COVID-19 is an emerging, rapidly evolving situation. Therefore, it remains critically important to continually check the CDC's most up-to-date guidance, as well as the guidance from your state and local health departments. CDC guidance for COVID-19 may be adapted by state and local health departments to respond to rapidly changing local circumstances. Last week, on November 25th, 2020, Telogen hosted an hour-long office hour on the topic of COVID-19 vaccine safety and efficacy. The presentation titled COVID-19 Vaccines at Warp Speed, What You Should Know, was delivered by subject matter expert Paul J. Carson, MD, FACP. He's a professor of practice in the Department of Public Health at North Dakota State University. Dr. Paul Carson is a physician who has practiced medicine in Minnesota and North Dakota for over 25 years. He is board certified in the specialties of internal medicine and infectious diseases. In 2013, he joined the faculty of North Dakota State University in the Department of Public Health, where he now teaches on management of infectious diseases in the Master of Public Health graduate program and directs the Center for Immunization Research and Education. Dr. Carson begins his vaccine discussion by first reviewing the most recent COVID-19 cases and death trends. These numbers are increasing rapidly every day, so I encourage you to visit the CDC's COVID data tracker webpage linked to this podcast for the most up-to-date information. We can all acknowledge the profound impact COVID-19 has had on our nation's health systems. Just in case you're wondering how COVID-19 contributes to the deaths occurring outside of pandemic parameters, here's a fact from the CDC. Over the past several years, death trends per week from all causes have stayed fairly consistent amongst all age groups. Notably, since March 2020, all-cause death rates have increased over the past several months in every age group greater than 25 years old. We are most certainly seeing more death this year than what we have seen in previous years. COVID-19 alone is having an impact, but the impact could also be from lockdowns, general fear of hospitals, and people with acute illnesses not visiting hospitals for these reasons. Along the same lines, Dr. Carson cautions against minimizing the severity of COVID-19. He discusses some beliefs that he's heard within healthcare arenas as well as in the general population. Um, I sometimes hear the claim, um, well, you know, it's those people with underlying conditions. Um, 
uh, the pastor of our church uh, just passed away. It was a, on the front page of our newspaper. Uh, um, age, he was 56. And I hear some of my, my co-parishioners saying, well, you know, he had some underlying conditions. You know, he kind of had that bronchitis every year and he was a little overweight. And I'm sort of thinking to myself, my Lord, uh, do you think he was dying of his slight overweight and his intermittent bronchitis in the winter? Like that somehow excuses uh, dying from COVID. And, and when you look a little more carefully at this, this is a, a county map of how many of us have one or more underlying conditions that put us at risk for a more severe outcome from COVID. And you can see the counties in black are 52 to 66% of the population in those counties have one or more underlying conditions. And the dark blue, 48 to 52%. Median county prevalence for any medical condition that puts you at a higher risk for being hospitalized or dying of COVID is 47%. So if it's like half of us have one of these underlying conditions, I hope we kind of get past the idea that somehow it's them or other that are at risk and not um, people in my immediate uh, sphere of influence or myself. The county map that Dr. Carson references can be found within the links of resources that are attached to this podcast. Another common belief that Dr. Carson has encountered is that COVID-19 is no worse than the flu. In response to this, Dr. Carson has researched and analyzed epidemiological factors, including the likelihood of spread amongst members of the population and the overall severity of illness. His analysis indicates that COVID-19 ranks similarly to the 1918 Spanish flu. To understand the severity of COVID-19 and its relationship with human biases, Dr. Carson poses the question of, what aspects of human nature affect an individual's decision to receive a vaccine? When thinking about a vaccine, humans are likely to use many different tactics. One of those tactics being heuristics, or quick off-the-cuff decision-making. Heuristics is often used in basic decision-making, but if a problem presents that requires a greater depth of thinking, heuristics tend to not be as accurate. Dr. Carson discusses a few other types of human biases, such as do no harm. We are naturally more inclined to accept a bad outcome from inaction versus a bad outcome from acting. So in the case of a vaccine, not receiving it feels safer than receiving it. Ambiguity, we are more comfortable with known than unknown risk. And unfortunately, the risks of COVID are becoming quite familiar to us. And then availability bias and compression. We conflate things we remember more easily, and we overestimate rare risks and underestimate common risks. For example, a rare side effect of a vaccine, although rare, it sticks out in our brains. This rare vaccine side effect seems a lot scarier than, say, the risks of driving a car, because we face the risks associated with cars on a daily basis. So with all of that in mind, let's go back to the concept of action versus inaction. So recent polling indicates the general public is uncertain whether they would accept a COVID-19 vaccine if and when it becomes available. A poll from Pew Research Center in September 2020 indicates that 51% of the population would probably or definitely receive the vaccine and 49% would probably or definitely not receive the vaccine. So based on this polling data, it seems as though the country is pretty divided on the topic of COVID-19 vaccines. So let's dive a little deeper and weigh the risk factors involved with receiving a vaccine and the risk factors involved with potentially getting COVID-19. 
Common vaccine risk factors include Guillain-Barre syndrome, a degenerative nerve condition, and anaphylaxis, or a severe allergic reaction. Although these complications are quite scary, based on current vaccine knowledge, severe complications only occur in one to two people for every one million. More specifically to COVID-19, at the time of this recording, three adverse events had occurred in COVID-19 vaccine trials, one of which happened in the placebo group, so that's not exactly applicable. And finally, the simple fact of the matter is that there is no long-term data on the safety and efficacy of a COVID-19 vaccine due to the rapid onset of this pandemic. All right, so we decide to forego the vaccine. This is what research says we're up against. If case numbers continue to rise unchecked by vaccines or treatments, this could mean a 1 in 300 chance of death in the United States. Additionally, four months post-hospitalization, some COVID-19 patients are still experiencing symptoms such as fatigue, memory loss, and dyspnea. And lastly, some studies suggest that myocardial injury persists after recovery in both hospitalized and non-hospitalized patients. So let's summarize what we've learned so far. Dr. Carson is emphasizing that due to innate biases, it makes sense that so much of the population is resistant to the idea of a brand new vaccine. We are innately more comfortable with known risks, and unfortunately, the risks related to contracting COVID are much more known amongst the general public. However, he urges us to consider that risks associated with becoming sick with COVID-19 may be much worse. As Dr. Carson continues to make the case for a COVID-19 vaccine, he shifts his focus to the actual processes behind ensuring this vaccine is safe and effective. So how does a COVID-19 vaccine even work? Dr. Carson offers a general overview of different methods of vaccine development and the advantages and disadvantages of each type. Most vaccines in development are geared towards encouraging the immune system to make antibodies against the spike protein, which prevents the virus from entering human cells. These vaccines can be made in many different ways, using mRNA and DNA, viral vectors, either replicating or non-replicating, whole-killed or live attenuated viruses, or a purified viral protein. For the sake of this recap, we will touch on the methods of development in our two frontrunner vaccines as of today, Pfizer and Moderna. These vaccines use the mRNA approach to immunity. mRNA engages our cells in making aspects of the virus, thus engaging more aspects of the immune system. There are some benefits and some downsides to using mRNA as a vaccine. So first, the benefits are that it's non-infectious and free of microbial components. Aspects of the virus do not become a part of our own DNA or our cell's genetic makeup. It's cheap and can be produced rather quickly. And probably most importantly, it prompts engagement of the two main branches of our immune system, the T and B cells. The downsides of mRNA vaccines are that they're brand new and there's not much history to go off of. They're unstable, and so they require proper storage at very low temperatures, which could pose a logistical issue. And lastly, they're known to have low immunogenicity, meaning a vaccine may require multiple doses because one dose does not produce a strong enough immune response. It is still largely debated whether any vaccine option will provide long-term durable immunity. Research right now shows a mixed bag. 
This debate is fueled by the fact that there are plenty of documented reinfection rates in other coronaviruses, as well as some reinfections in COVID-19 patients. Some studies out there have not noted any long-term immunity in coronavirus patients, but some studies have noted some durable T-cell immunity that's present three-plus years after infection with a coronavirus that's similar to COVID-19 patients. The upcoming Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are, in fact, seeing positive B antibody responses and T cell-mediated responses. Now that we know more about how the vaccine works, let's explore how we get this to market. Next, we'll compare the typical vaccination trials process with the accelerated trials we're seeing today. Please see the resources attached to this podcast to view a comparison graphic of the two timelines. Clinical trials occur in multiple phases with different levels of participation and scrutiny. The traditional timeline usually takes about 10 to 15 years, and it consists of the exploratory and preclinical phases, the clinical trials, which include phase one through three, FDA review and approval, and manufacturing. The accelerated timeline still includes all of these components. The only difference is that the clinical trials review and approval process is being conducted on a rolling basis by the FDA. This is allowing it to occur faster, so it's looking more like six months rather than that 10 to 15 year timeline. Every day, more and more vaccines are entering the various phases of the clinical trials process across the country and around the world. According to the New York Times, and as of November 30th, 2020, there are 40 vaccines testing safety and dosage in phase one, 17 vaccines in expanded safety trials in phase two, 13 vaccines and large-scale efficacy tests in Phase 3, and 6 vaccines approved for early or limited use. Zero have been fully approved for use. Based on those numbers, it seems as though many vaccines are on this expedited clinical trials process. So what does that mean for the safety and the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccine? Because COVID-19 is a public health emergency, the emergency use authorization has been activated by the FDA, which essentially means they're allowing this expedited clinical trial process to take place. The good news is, is that in the case of coronaviruses, much of the exploratory and preclinical work has already happened. We've known about coronaviruses for a long time and their potential risk to public health. Next, as I mentioned, phases one through three are not happening necessarily any faster. Rather, their timelines are overlapping. So instead of waiting until the very end of phases one through three, the FDA is conducting reviews of each phase as they're happening. And then lastly, funds are already allocated for manufacturing. So once vaccines are approved, they can be quickly produced. Dr. Carson points out a few facts about the current vaccination trials process that's different than many other vaccine trials in the past. So COVID-19 vaccines currently enroll tens of thousands of participants in their studies, larger than many other vaccine trials. The larger the end size of the trial, the greater the likelihood of discovering whether the vaccine increases the risk of an adverse event relative to the general population. Additionally, the FDA requires at least two months of safety data before considering licensure of any vaccine. Is that even long enough? Well, historical data of vaccine trials indicate that 90% of serious adverse events will be detected within the first six weeks. So the two-month time frame should be sufficient in detecting any seriously significant problems.
The government has implemented several national vaccine safety tracking programs, such as Vaccine Safety Assessment for Essential Workers, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, Vaccine Safety Data Link, Post-Licensure Rapid Immunization Safety Monitoring, and the Clinical Immunization Safety Assessment Project. You can find more information on methods for tracking the safety of vaccines at www.cdc.gov slash vaccine safety. Even if a COVID-19 vaccine jumps through all of these safety hoops, the FDA still requires a vaccine to decrease the likelihood of infection by at least 50% to be considered for licensure. Correspondence with Dr. Carson after the recording of his presentation revealed that recent data shows that both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are at least 95% effective in preventing infection. Additionally, new data from Pfizer shows that the vaccine was equally effective in preventing infection in people over the age of 65. Preliminary herd immunity calculations indicate that 70% of the population needs to be vaccinated to slow or stop the spread of COVID-19. So now that we've learned about the safety and efficacy of a COVID-19 vaccination, what does this vaccination distribution process potentially look like? Final vaccination plans will likely be made by each individual state, but it seems as though most states are leaning towards vaccinating healthcare workers first. We must also consider high-risk medical conditions, other essential workers, advanced age, and overlapping circumstances such as a healthcare worker with a high-risk condition when determining who to vaccinate first. Right now, the U.S. has about 20 million healthcare providers. We know the initial approval of COVID-19 vaccination stock is less than that, so states may have to be even more specific and determine which healthcare providers should be vaccinated first. As production continues, vaccines will be made available for high-risk populations and then for all eligible individuals. So, for the average civilian, vaccines could still be months away. It is evident there is still a lot of work to be done in determining how to vaccinate the general population in a way that works the best for the most people. To close his presentation, Dr. Carson details his optimistic timeline for vaccine distribution. November of 2020. Vaccine safety data reviews are occurring. This is the case for the Pfizer vaccine. December of 2020. Pfizer will likely receive its emergency use authorization and begin administration of vaccines. Other vaccines, such as the Moderna vaccine, will undergo safety review. January of 2021, multiple vaccine manufacturers will likely complete initial vaccination of healthcare workers. Once this initial phase is complete, states will likely begin vaccinating other people based on allocation of resources. February 2021 and onwards, continued vaccination of eligible people. To summarize even further, Let's address the key points from Dr. Carson's presentation one more time. COVID is severe and taking more and more lives each day. And although we are a bit desensitized to the risks associated with actively becoming sick with COVID-19, we must stay focused on mitigating those risks with vaccines and treatment. Members of the healthcare community have a responsibility for educating the public on the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. The clinical trials process has not necessarily been shortened, just modified to occur on a rolling basis. 
The FDA and the CDC have implemented many vaccine safety monitoring programs that continue long after clinical trials complete. Adverse safety events typically occur within the first six weeks of vaccine trials, and the FDA is requiring two months of safety data for the coronavirus vaccines. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are on the horizon with emerging data reporting 95% efficacy. Initial vaccination will focus on healthcare workers and vulnerable populations. As more information becomes available, Telligent hopes to provide you with updates on this important topic. We would like to thank Dr. Carson for allowing us to share the contents of his presentation in this format. Please see the link in the attached document to find more information as well as a link to the full presentation. Thank you so much for listening to this 15-minute recap. Are you interested in learning more about Telogen QI Connect and the hospital quality improvement contract, as well as how your hospital can enroll in this free quality improvement program? You can find the link in the attached document to enroll. Additional questions and comments can be emailed to us at hquickteam at telogen.com, H-Q-I-C-T-E-A-M at telogen.com.